Genesis chapter 2, please, will be the portion of Scripture we will be considering this morning. The text is verses 14 through to 17. We'll be spending most of our time from verse 8 onwards. You know, when you get married, uh, your first home together is special. Uh, often it's not very uh, impressive. Uh, for Emma and I, it was a very small unit, uh, Unit 6, 207 High Street, Lismore Heights. Uh, I will never forget it. Uh, I was happy when we moved out to something bigger, but it's always special because it was here where we started life together. And our text is about the first home of Adam and Eve, and man, it was special. It was the best first home of anyone throughout all of history. For it was the first paradise. Now our text commences in chapter 2 and verse 4. And this actually begins a new section of the narrative. It commences with what is called a toledot. And you think, what in the world is a toledot? Well, if you look at that first phrase, it said, these are the generations. And a toledot is like a transliteration of the Hebrew word. And this is actually found throughout the book of Genesis. And what it does is it identifies the beginning of a new section. And usually it introduces either the descendants of some person or it commences a narrative about some person. Now it's unique here that it says the generations of the heavens and the earth. Okay? It's not a person. And this is repeating phraseology from the previous chapter. And what this tells us is that this section is another account about creation. But this is not a second creation account. But rather it fleshes out the creation week as recorded in the first chapter. And this is such a vital interpretive point. This is not a separate creation account. The Bible doesn't teach multiple creations. But rather, this expands and develops primarily the sixth day of creation. Okay, we could say that it provides a commentary on what has unfolded, and it gives us some important details that will help us understand some upcoming events. And this particular interpretation that I'm proposing is confirmed by Jesus' use of the scriptures. Okay, when he addressed divorce, he went back to Genesis, and that's very significant. And he quoted together from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, I know the chapters weren't present at that time, but the Toledot was. And he quoted from both before and after the Toledot as if it was one event. Okay, Jesus says in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, and he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 1.27. And then he continues, And, okay, joining them together, And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. That is Genesis 2.24. And the way that Jesus quotes this, he okay, joins them together, reveals that he viewed this as one account, not two. And furthermore, we learnt last week that God rested. And one of the things that rest signified was the completion of the created realm. 
Okay, God has declared it was very good and it was finished. And hence chapter 2 can't be more creating because God has already finished the created work. Hence we need to view Genesis 2 as giving more detail about what has already occurred. Okay, that, that is very significant. And I want you to notice something else significant in verse 4. For the first time we see Lord God. Okay, two names joined together. Jehovah Elohim. So far God has only been identified as Elohim. 35 times this name of God has been used in the first section of Genesis. And that's appropriate for the majestic portrayal of God as the almighty creator of the universe. But now, at this point, another name is added. And Lord God becomes the dominant name up until the end of chapter 4. Okay, chapter 4 concludes this second section. If you look at chapter 5, it begins with the next Toledot. Now, what is significant about the inclusion of Lord? Okay, as we read on in the Bible, this is God's personal covenant name. It speaks of a God who relates to people. And this is what this section is all about. It reveals that God wants to be in relationship with people. Yes, he is Elohim. He is almighty. He's the all glorious creator. But he's also Jehovah. He's Yahweh. And he desires to be in a covenant relationship with mankind. And that's the focus of this second section of Genesis. Okay, if you look at verses 4 to 7, okay, there's a lot there that I'm just going to skim over. It covers astronomy, agronomy, and anthropology, stars, land, people. And we see from how God created mankind in verse 7 that he desired relationship. Because man is a living soul. Man is a relational being. If we remember back in Genesis 1, man is made in the image and likeness of God. That is all about relationship. But not only did God make man and woman, which happened on the sixth day. Okay, he made Adam, who then named the animals, and Eve was made all on the sixth day. But also on the sixth day, God made a special home. This is the first home of man. And it's here where God and man could enjoy an intimate relationship. And this is going to be our focus. The home that God made for man. The place that we know as the Garden of Eden. And I have two main headings that will govern both our direction and our destination. So the first, paradise and the final paradise. So let's consider the first home of man, both what it was like and how it points to a greater reality. So firstly, the first paradise. By having made man, God then made the perfect home for man. We know it as the Garden of Eden. Question for you, what comes to your mind when you think about the Garden of Eden? What, what does the picture in your mind look like? What, what are you picturing right now? 
The word Eden, what does it mean? Well, it speaks of delight. It speaks of pleasure. It was paradise. Okay, that's the word that the Septuagint uses when it translated the Old Testament, where we get the English word paradise. It was a place of stunning beauty, of lush fertility and fruitfulness. It contained all that Adam and Eve needed to survive and thrive and much more. And if we think about some of the stunning scenery in our world, remembering our world is fallen, our world is post-flood, okay, and think about what we see. It's amazing. And yet the Garden of Eden was in another category. Okay, the world has known nothing that has amazed and indulged the five senses like this garden. And words cannot adequately describe this first paradise. And what I'd like to do, I want to make five observations about this first paradise from the text. First observation. This was a real place. It's important to understand that the Garden of Eden, it, it's not an allegory. It's not a mythical location. It, it's not some fairy tale land, but rather a real location on planet Earth. And the text makes this point in a couple of ways. In verse 8, notice the phraseology. It says, a garden eastward in Eden. Eden is actually a geographical location. So the garden was in the land of Eden. The text also mentions eastward. And this seems to be referencing east of where the people were at Mount Sinai, remembering Genesis was written by Moses. And hence Eastwood tells us that this was a real location. If it was mythical, it couldn't be referred to as east of another location. Okay, we know Mount Sinai is a real location. That would not make sense. And this point is also stressed in verses 4 through to 11, where four rivers are named. Now this description is meant to convey images of spectacular beauty. And life-giving resources. But understand, there's no reason to supply so much detail, particularly these names, if this is mythological. And hence, this seems to be supplied in order to strengthen the case for Eden's historical existence. Now, we need to understand, this doesn't mean that we know the location. There have been many attempts to determine the GPS coordinates, many focusing on where the Euphrates River is today. But this is what we need to understand. Two significant events happened that have drastically altered the world, the fall and the flood. And hence, we cannot be certain about original location. But this is not an issue. But just because something hasn't been found doesn't guarantee it never existed. And we do need to be clear that this was a real location, not something mythical. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, why? Why is it such a big drama? Okay, well, understand this. If we deny that Eden was a real location, okay, if we adopt a mythological approach, it has massive theological implications. Understand this. If we deny that Eden is real, we have to deny that Adam was real and that the fall was real which undermines the gospel. 
Okay, so the Garden of Eden was a real location. The second observation, this was a unique location. What I mean by this observation is that the whole world was not the Garden of Eden. It was a unique area within the created realm. Okay, it's true that the whole creation was glorious, but the Garden of Eden was even more spectacular. Okay, the word garden, it means to be enclosed or fenced off. So this was a marked out or distinct area. And it seems to denote that in this area, things flourished even more. The grass was lusher and greener. The fruit was more delicious. The sights were more spectacular. Notice in verse 9, it says, Every tree was pleasant to the sight and good for food within the garden. Okay, it stresses the idea of beauty. Now, it's true that outside of Eden, there existed a beautiful world. Okay, no corner of the world was dead and barren or lacking for beauty. And yet in Eden, God poured out beauty in a special measure. We could say everywhere else was comparatively moderate. And it was also here where God would commune with man and woman. And hence, it's not improper to view the Garden of Eden as like a tabernacle or a temple. Well, we could call it a garden temple because this was the unique location where God would fellowship with man. It was here man could enjoy bliss and harmony with God. God's uniquely present in the garden. Okay, so this was different. To the rest of creation. And this was next level glorious. It's the second observation. The third observation. This garden was all about having fellowship with God. I've already hinted at this point. But it's worth highlighting separately. God made this home for man. And we're told in verse 8. That he put the man in the garden. Well, it's interesting that elsewhere in the Old Testament, the garden is referred to as the garden of the Lord. That's Genesis 13.10. And it's called the garden of God in Ezekiel 28.13. This tells us a few things. It tells us that God is the owner. Now, that's true of all creation. But such language reminds us of God's presence in this location. And God's placement of man here suggests that fellowship and relationship was intended. And this is certainly implied in verse 8 of chapter 3. Okay, we're told that they, Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord and he was walking in the garden. And what's striking about that is that it didn't shock or surprise them. Okay, if we saw God walking, we would be shocked and surprised. No man sees God and lives. Okay, they weren't hiding themselves because God was walking in the garden. They were hiding themselves because of sin and shame. And what this implies is that God, okay, is that God was walking with them and, and talking with them. This was a common occurrence. So this is what the garden is all about. A place of relationship with God. Where man could walk and talk with God. A place where they could know God intimately. This was the designated purpose of the garden. The fourth observation, there were two unique trees in the garden. Okay, in the garden there were two trees that were not found 
elsewhere. They're identified in verse 9 as the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're told that they are in the midst of the garden. Okay, this word can be translated center. The idea being they were in a prominent position, perhaps side by side. Now it's important to understand, okay, straight off the bat, that these trees and the fruit they produce, that they're not magical. But rather they were means used by God. Life is from God, not some fruits. Okay, life was not an inherent property of the fruit, but a gift that God gave through the eating of the fruit. Now, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is only mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. Whereas the tree of life is referenced in Proverbs and most significantly in the book of Revelation. Now, when it comes to understanding these trees, diversity of opinion abounds, especially with the tree of knowledge. So with the tree of life, okay, the best way to understand this is to look what happens after the fall. Okay, after the fall, man is removed from the garden. Cherubims guard the garden. Why? Well, it's to ensure that the tree of life wasn't consumed. And understand that that is grace from God. Because if man consumed the fruit, they would have lived forever, but they would have remained in their sinful state. So that tree gave life. Now, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's here where different opinions abound. And more attention will be given to this tree when we consider God's command to Adam and Eve in the coming weeks. But very basically, this tree formed the test for mankind. Okay, this tree was the assessment of the probation period. And if it was eaten, it made man like God in a way that he was not meant to be. Genesis 3.22 so the acquiring of this knowledge came about through a rebellious act. Okay? It was an autonomous act, okay, which I believe is the central issue with this tree. But again, it was not the fruit itself that was evil. Evil came by disobedience to God's commands. Okay, and these two trees were both found in the Garden of Eden. Okay? And no two trees have impacted humanity like these two that were found in the first paradise. Okay, the fifth observation is the garden was a probation period. Now I'll say much more about this the next time that I preach. But theologians refer to this time in the garden as the probation period. Okay, this was a time of testing. Would man obey God or would they not? Okay, and the key point for us to understand is this. For there to be a true loving relationship between God and man, this would need to be chosen by man. Okay, God would not force it. And hence, mankind was created with a free will. Man had the ability to choose to obey or to choose to not obey. Okay, and it's this that's unfolding in the garden. Now, we need to understand that mankind was created with a bent toward righteousness, but it remained unconfirmed. Okay, so right now we are born in sin. We're born with a sin nature. Adam and Eve, that they were made with a bent towards righteousness, but it was unconfirmed. But God did absolutely everything to ensure that man would obey and then enjoy him forever. 
We could say that the deck was stacked in man's favour. But with that in mind, we need to understand the Garden of Eden in terms of potential. Okay, that there was this potential for perfection. There was this potential for sweet intimacy with God. But there was also potential for great devastation. There was potential for death and decay to be unleashed. Because man had a choice to make. Okay, so this is the great potential in Eden. And it was up to mankind as to what potential would be unleashed. And unfortunately, we know the rest of the story. Okay, so this is the first paradise. God's gracious provision, a place of serenity, immense beauty, lush fertility and fruitfulness. This was paradise, the perfect first home. And there are three lessons that I'd like to draw out from this first paradise. Number one, God wants a relationship with us. Okay, we see this clearly in how God created man. He, he created us in his image. No one else in the creation possesses that image. Okay, that image makes relationship possible. And the first paradise was a place where man and God could be in fellowship. They could have a relationship. And what this reveals is that God is a relational God. That is his nature. Okay, and understand that is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. Because God is a relational God. And in order for that to be his character, he had to have relationships for all eternity. How is that possible? You need the Trinity. Okay, there is fellowship, there is intimacy in the Godhead for all eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship. And now, God wants to have a relationship with you and me. And this is confirmed by how he has made us, and also for us, by providing salvation. And my friend, that's amazing. Okay, allow that to sink in. God desires this. God wants to have a relationship with us. And he's made it possible. Now we need to understand he doesn't need it. We don't complete something in him that's lacking. But rather he graciously extends it to us. And what a great privilege that is. That we can have a relationship with God. That's possible. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And I trust that if you're a Christian, you are investing in your relationship with God. That, that this is something that you cherish, that you value, that, that you care about more than anything else. Because it's a wonderful privilege, the fact that we can have a relationship with God. The second lesson that I'd like to draw out is the hideous nature of the fall. Now, it's important to understand that there is absolutely no justifiable reason for the decision that Adam made to partake of the fruit. Man's nature is described as perfect, as is his environment, that there is nothing lacking. If man was created imperfect, maybe there would be an excuse. Or if the environment was imperfect, you know, perhaps there would be an excuse. But the fact that everything was perfect, 
that makes the fall so dreadful. And what it ensures is that the fall was not God's fault. He did everything to ensure that man would make the right choice. That there is no legitimate place for the undermining cynicism that the serpent will use in Genesis chapter 3. It should have been rejected instantly. And yet it wasn't. And that paints a very sad and dark picture of the hideous nature of the pending fall of man. And the third lesson is environment is not the issue. So often when you and I are seeking to excuse or explain away our own sinful attitudes and actions or or those of others, we start making excuses. We blame the environments. We blame external factors. I did this because of others. It's because of my circumstances. It's because of my situation. I wouldn't have responded sinfully if my life wasn't so hard. We blame our upbringing. We blame our school. We blame our workplace. If only my environment was different, that would change everything. But understand, that's wrong. That's error. And it's illustrated vividly in the first paradise. Mankind began their history in the most perfect environment ever known. That they possessed the most favorable circumstances imaginable. They had no indwelling sin. And what happens? They still sinned. Okay, and this smashes to pieces the theory that says change of environment will change the person. Because it's not the environment that's the problem. It's the person. And it's only the gospel that can change the person. And may you and I as Christians learn from this. Don't blame our environment. Don't blame our circumstances. Don't blame other people. Okay, we don't sin primarily because of these external factors. Okay, why do we sin? Let me be blunt with you. Do you know why we sin? We sin because we choose to. Okay, we, we sin because we're battling with the flesh. And Adam proves that we could have the perfect environment, we could have the perfect circumstances, and yet still choose sin. Okay, so these things are not justifiable excuses for sin. And may we forsake offering such pathetic excuses. So there are the three lessons. And that concludes our first point, the first paradise. Okay, this is the home that God made for the first man. But God will also make a home for all believers. And this is the second point, which I've entitled the final paradise. The fall of mankind is one of the greatest tragedies of history. And this resulted in man being permanently removed from the Garden of Eden. And this commenced the process of death and decay. That there was no longer a perfect home for mankind. And understand the curse impacted absolutely everything in the created realm. We're still feeling its effects each and every moment of each and every day. But here's the good news of the gospel. Not only has Jesus provided a way for man to be redeemed. He's provided a way for us to be delivered from the curse. Understand the created realm will also be redeemed. 
At the moment, the creation is groaning under the curse. Paul teaches us that in the book of Romans. But one day it will be restored. The curse will be lifted. Colossians 1.20, speaking of Jesus' reconciling ministry, says that he reconciles all things to himself, which includes the creation. Okay, so understand God will create another perfect home for man. But this will be far greater than the Garden of Eden. Now that's hard for you and I to comprehend. Because the first paradise was astonishing. I've endeavored to make that point. But the final paradise will make Eden look bland in comparison. Now when we talk about the final paradise... This is not talking about heaven where God is presently. Okay, where God is right now, that is where Christians will go when they die. We refer to that as the intermediate state. But our final abode is actually the new heavens and the new earth. And this is recorded in Revelation 21 and 22. Okay, so the final paradise is in this world. Now the center, it's not a garden, but it's a city. The city is known as the new Jerusalem. And if you read through the book of Revelation, you will see that this city has a river just like the Garden of Eden that also has the tree of life. So there are similarities. And some actually refer to it as a restoration of Eden. But here's the thing. The final paradise is far greater than Eden. And I want to give you seven reasons. While the final paradise is far greater than the first paradise. And my goal is for us to be uplifted, for us to be filled with a greater sense of anticipation as we ponder the superiority of the Christian's final paradise. That is the goal. Okay, seven reasons. And they're reasonably short, just so you know. Reason one Satan cannot enter. Satan entered the Garden of Eden and he wreaked havoc. But he can never enter the final paradise. That the great murderer and slanderer can never sow his poisonous seeds in this place. Our great adversary will not and cannot sabotage our final home. For he will be where he belongs. In the lake of fire for all eternity. Okay, understand that Jesus' death on the cross secured the ultimate defeat of Satan. Okay, this has not yet been finalized, but Romans 16.20 ensures that it will happen. Okay, Satan's head will be bruised just as Genesis 3.15 says. And Revelation 20.10 spells out his final doom. And this is wonderful news. It says, and the devil... That deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's where Satan ends up. Satan will be tormented forever and ever in the lake of fire. That is his final home. But understand, if he is there, that means we will never be faced with our adversary again. Satan cannot enter the final paradise like he did the first paradise. And he can never bring death, decay 
and construction there. It's a Satan-free zone for all eternity. It's reason one. Reason two, the possibility of sin is removed. Okay, in the Garden of Eden, man was created free from sin. Okay, I mentioned before, he had a bent towards original righteousness. He didn't have to sin. But there was a possibility of it. And this is where the final paradise is superior. Not only will there be no sin, but there will be no potential of sin. Okay, my friend, please understand this. For all eternity, there will be no sin. There will be no thought of sin. There will be no desire to sin. We won't be tempted to sin. We'll no longer be vulnerable to sin. Revelation 21, 27 says that nothing that defileth will enter, meaning there's no sin. Okay, and this is because the work of salvation will be complete. At that point, we will be glorified. Remember the three stages of salvation? Justification, sanctification, glorification. And when we're glorified, the struggle with the flesh that we experience right now, it will be over. No longer will we do those things that, that we know we shouldn't. And not do the things that we know we should. We, we will no longer battle with our thoughts, our tongues, our tempers. We, we will be completely rid of all sin and the struggle with it. And I tell you what, I don't know about you, but man, I long for that. When, when I no longer have to battle with sin, when I no longer succumb to sin. And the possibility of sin is completely removed. This will be the reality in the final paradise. That's reason two. Reason three. There will be no discontentment with God's provision or character. Now in the Garden of Eden it was this that unleashed the cosmic bomb of sin on the world. Okay, and its devastating effects have impacted everything. And it's still ongoing. We experience it every day. Why did this happen? Well, Adam doubted God's character. He was discontent with God's provision. He wanted more. And before we're too hard on him, this has plagued us all. All honest people will admit that at times, and perhaps for some quite regularly and for lengthy times, we're discontent with God's provision. We question his character. And we can have some quite sad and bad attitudes toward God. This is a disease that affects us all in varying degrees. But understand this will be completely eradicated in our final home. Not once for all eternity will we ever doubt or question God's character or provision. But rather our understanding, our appreciation and our love for him will grow and grow and grow forever. And we will never run out of new things to learn about God. And if that doesn't blow your mind, I'm not sure what will. Okay? And this will be our great joy forever. Reason number four, fellowship with God cannot be broken. Adam and Eve communed with God in the garden. They walked with him, but sin broke that relationship. And it required the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to restore it. But here's the thing, in our final home, okay, the best thing about it is that Jesus will be there. Jesus will outshine everything that's there. And we get to be with him forever. 
And we will enjoy harmony and intimacy with him for all eternity. We'll finally see him face to face. And we will enjoy him forever. And, and there's nothing that we or others can do to wreck it. And this makes the final paradise far better. Fellowship with God can never be broken. Reason five, we cannot be removed from it. Okay, there's nothing that we can do to be exiled from our final home. God won't give us an eviction notice like he did Adam and Eve. Okay, they had to leave the garden and weren't permitted back in. But that will never happen in the final paradise. All who have entered have a residency there for all eternity. Okay, it's here where eternal life is lived out. My friend, we're eternally secure in Christ. Nothing can separate us from that. Romans 8, 38 and 39. There's no one or nothing that can remove us. And this makes it far greater than Eden. Reason six. It cannot be destroyed. The Garden of Eden no longer exists. You can't find it. It's been destroyed because of the sin of man. Okay, the first paradise has been destroyed, but this can never happen to the final paradise. Nothing can destroy it. Nothing can diminish it. There will be no decay, no corruption. There will be no enemies that attack it and seek to overthrow it. Nothing from outside, nothing from inside can destroy it. There will be no threats, either real or potential. It will be eternal bliss, perfectly safe and secure. That cannot and will not be interrupted in any way. That's reason six. And reason seven, there will be no possibility of death. You know, in the Garden of Eden, death became a reality because of the fall. Okay, the, the possibility of death always existed if man failed the probation. But death will no longer be a reality in our final home. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ didn't fail like Adam. Jesus Christ, he defeated death. And hence, there will be no death in our final home. Okay, the whole process of death and decay will be no more. And understand that this is not only potential based on our performance, but this is a settled reality because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Death will be no more. That is the seventh reason. And when we put these seven together, that is why heaven will be far greater than Eden. The first paradise was amazing, but it pales into insignificance compared to the final paradise. And here's the thing. This is what I want everyone to understand. Mankind will have a final home. Understand, death is not the end. In fact, death is really just the beginning. And there are two possible locations for your final home. You will be in one of two locations. Okay? Either paradise with Jesus or lake of fire with Satan. Okay? They're the only two options. Understand, we, we all deserve... To be with the devil because of our sin. That's what we deserve. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his substitutionary work on the cross. It's possible for us to go to heaven. 
But please understand, in order to receive a ticket to heaven, you must come to Jesus. You must repent of your sin. Turn from your sin and believe that Jesus is God and that he died for your sin on the cross. This alone is how you get to heaven. You can't get yourself to heaven. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't do enough good things to get to heaven. You can't build a ladder to heaven. Only Jesus can get you there. And I trust that you have confident assurance based on Christ that you will spend eternity in paradise. But if you don't have that assurance, why not come to Christ today as Savior? The gracious invitation is extended to you. And if you would like to know more about that, please speak to one of us before you leave. But for those of us who are Christians, man, how wonderful it is to be a Christian. Yes, this life, man, this life can often be so hard. We can be frustrated with sin. We can be frustrated by the consequences of sin. We can be frustrated in our relationships. The trials and troubles can often overwhelm us. But we have some great things awaiting us. And how wonderful is the eternal state going to be? And we don't deserve any of it. It's God's gracious gift to us. And forever and ever and ever and ever, we're going to have the glorious grace of Jesus lavished upon us. We will have a forever home and get to enjoy God forever. And I hope you're looking forward to that. You know, I think often we can become so settled and consumed with with this life, obsessed about what this life has to offer us, but even the best things of this life, they're pretty lame and lousy compared to what's in store for us. Because Jesus, Jesus is preparing a home for us. And we will be with him forever. Yes, the Garden of Eden was amazing, but it's nothing compared to what awaits us. We have the perfect home with the perfect Jesus for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of who you are. You're a great God. And that's magnified by what we have in store for us. It it amazes me that that you would do this for us. We're so undeserving. And again, this is just a testament to your greatness. And Lord, we we long, we we long uh, to to be with you. And uh, Lord, may may these realities be uh, encouraging us uh, as we live uh, in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.